Good morning. As we come back together, uh, or as we uh, mute as we're already together, um, it is uh, a great uh, joy to enter into an Easter season. And uh, I think some of you may have seen the email I sent. And as we reflect on Easter as a season, not just simply as a day, there's a way in which the historic church has understood that you go through Lent, which is a reflection on those things that needed to be done, that God is doing in uh, working against the consequences of the fall, working against the, the brokenness in my own heart and in my own life, and in our communities, and those things we would desire for God to do in and through us. Easter is a time, historically, when the church comes out the other side of Good Friday into a season of celebration, of joy, and really 40 days of reflecting on the goodness and the bounty uh, that God provides. That, of course, is slightly more difficult uh, this season. It, uh, Self-isolation and uh, going through a pandemic fits pretty well with Lent. It doesn't really fit with Easter but one has to imagine in the providences of God what it looks like now to reflect and to hope as those who know that God's work can and will be done and that this isn't uh, an ultimate or final declaration of anything. It is uh, simply one season that the church has gone through and will go through that uh, reminds us that we desperately need the middle time, this already not yet, to come to a conclusion. But in the midst of that, we have a role to fill and work to do. And we've been looking at the leadership component of this uh, over the last few months, except for Palm Sunday and Easter. And I just want to remind us before we go back into the text, we've described biblical leadership, the leadership that Jesus uh, models and embodies as having three components, uh, again, for our ability to get our minds around it. First of all, it is uh, a, a, a leadership that comforts. It comforts us with the love and in a shared life. As Ben so uh, aptly prayed just a moment ago, Jesus shared the brokenness of this life. And so as he comforts us, he comforts us with the love of God, but also in his shared humanity, in his shared incarnation. And so we come alongside as leaders uh, in line with our, our, our Lord and Savior as those who comfort with love, with the love of God, in the reality of our shared existence. There is also the role of confronting. And this is uh, in order that we might live free, uh, live free of the complications and the entanglement and the brokenness of sin. Confrontation uh, and exhortation is about living free in who we are in Christ, and it always comes in the context of love. We love people enough to encourage and to hope and to believe that we can live free in ever greater degrees from the sin and brokenness of the world. And then lastly, it's a call. Those who've been comforted, those who are increasingly being freed from uh, the power of sin and death, as we understand who we are in Christ, it allows us 
uh, to call one another on to good works, uh, call one another on to live out the ethics of the kingdom of God in our relationships and in our communities. And again, that is a life lived out of love. The overarching ethic, of course, then is love. Uh, God's ethic of love is seen in 1 Corinthians 13. It's seen in the life uh, of the uh, Old Testament people and God's faithfulness to them and his description of them as a dearly loved bride, even in difficult seasons. And then, of course, his love for us in sending his son. And so the call is to live a life that is marked off by love, that is uh, permeated by love. This then uh, is where we come to the next section in our passage in 1 Timothy, because if we're going to talk about teachers, and if we're going to talk about what it means to love one's family well and to uh, direct one's family well, it has to always be couched in and anchored in the comfort, the confrontation, and the calling that love brings into each one of our lives as we care for one another in Christ. And so this morning, let's uh, keep that in mind as we open up the text. We'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarreling, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must not be, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snares of the devil. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to be merciful uh, and gracious in this season where we are stretched to our limits of understanding our unity with you physically and spiritually when the physical can be distant. Lord, we pray that we would be that encouragement and coming alongside in all of the ways that are possible to us. We pray, Lord, that you would bring a swift end to this season of separation physically, and we pray that as we come before your word, we might be united again in the, the great joy that it is to be your people and to have hope in the midst of even valleys that are very dark. We pray these things knowing that we desire to hear your word, and we pray that whatever is said this morning is useful for the building up of your people. And whatever is not true, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So I come from a, a family, uh, or at least I married into a family, of almost all teachers. 
uh, one way or another. My children are becoming teachers at an alarming rate. Um, and I wish more than anything else that I could have given them uh, the gifts of uh, engineering or something where they could uh, make their living uh, honestly. But, um, but in the midst of these challenges that we face, uh, we know that we need good teachers and that we need the strength of families. In fact, in these times, it actually stresses the importance that we uh, have older brothers and sisters, people who are well-versed in certain areas of both theology, but also practical life. And in the midst of that, how we have and continue to guard and guide our families. Uh, and so it is uh, quite applicable in a season like this to reflect on what it means to be uh, and to have fostering within our community of faith teachers who uh, also exhibit their ability to use that gift of teaching uh, in various ways uh, it, within their own families as well as within the family of Christ. So first, I want to look at teaching, and then we'll look at uh, what it means uh, to have that impact our family, as uh, Paul here lays out for Timothy two more criteria and expectations of what godly leadership looks like. And as we've been saying throughout this uh, sermon series, the hope is that all of these uh, gifts and all of these uh, mature aspects of Christ-like character are being fostered broadly throughout the church. It is simply those who are called in the midst of living out Christ-likeness that some of them will be called to be leaders, and some of them will have that additional burden put on them, that additional privilege and weight. But these things shouldn't be absent in the body, except for a few odd ducks that we end up making uh, elders and deacons. They should be increasingly, because it is about freedom, uh, the marks of, of all of God's people. And so we want to see those encouraged, not just in leadership, but certainly no less than our leaders. So teaching. What's the context of what Paul's doing here? Well, we have to go back to chapter 1, verse 3, and remember that Timothy is being charged because uh, people are not teaching well. There are people teaching different doctrines, and so there is obviously a component that what we teach does have an anchor in what is true and what is a right understanding and unpacking of Scripture. There's two components to this false teachers in chapter one. First, they are speculating rather uh, than implementing the stewardship of Scripture. What that apparently means is that there's pressures from uh, Greek thought that is uh, present in Ephesus. This letter was written to Ephesus. Uh, it benefits us all to be sure. But the speculation rather than stewardship, and some of this uh, continues today when we try and wrestle with the difference between the way that scripture is written and its perspective and trying to speculate on how it might fit into other worldviews or into other philosophies. And at its worst, we end up speculating on things that Scripture doesn't speak of at all, and, uh, or at least not with any clarity. Uh, about a century ago, 
there was great speculation on something called infra or supralapsarianism. Now those words are very expensive words, but the basic idea was whether or not one believed that God had ordained the fall and then the death and resurrection of Jesus, or whether or not the death and resurrection of Jesus was foreordained first and then the fall. And then wonderful discussions ensued as to which was more philosophically logical and which one would or would not reduce God's power and sovereignty. Scripture doesn't deal with this. And although fascinating, it is Greek logic invading Scripture. Scripture doesn't answer the question because it's not what Scripture wants to talk about. Now, it's all fine to have that kind of speculation. The problem was certain pastors couldn't be ordained unless they held the right view on this speculative uh, philosophy. And so when it begins to invade, Paul is saying, look, when you start speculating on things that Scripture is not clear about, Timothy, clamp down on it. It's not good for the church, and it will break down the body. It's not conducive to good leadership. We should not speculate. We should steward. That means absolutely affirming that which is true and not being blown one way or the other as time uh, and cultures often force us. The second, if you look at chapter 1, verse 3, is that there are uh, the application of the law without understanding. And this, again, uh, leaders can impose upon and go back to the law and kind of put push us into certain boxes. But Paul is saying, if you don't understand what's happened in the law, and how Jesus interacts with it, and how it's been transformed, what you're going to find is that you misunderstand the richness of what the law is. And at its core, what the law is, is a description of God's character and the implications of what happens in certain parts when sin enters our life and makes us contrary or act contrary to our created nature as those who were created to reflect the glory of God. And we are about the business of that restoration. And it's always the glory of God, which is key, not the slavish uh, pursuit of obeying particular laws out of context. And so leadership in this setting, in Ephesus, Paul is addressing speculation, and he's addressing an ignorance of how the law really works. In 620, at the end of the book, he talks about the irreverent babble, the contradiction of what uh, is true about Scripture. And Timothy, as a leader, is supposed to stop that and discourage and argue against those ideas falsely labeled as knowledge. And again, this gives us another hint that he's wrestling with Greek thought in the way that he uses that language of knowledge. So the first aspect of teaching then is that teachers need to be learners. In both of these cases, speculation and ignorance of the law, the root problem is 
there isn't a humility and submission both to the Holy Spirit, but also to those like Paul who have been called and well-trained and in their life both act out the character of Christ in leadership, fallen as it may be, yet nonetheless humbly and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. The other aspect that comes all the way through 1 Timothy, particularly around these issues of teaching, is submission. And so the men have characteristics of being angry. They, have, uh, they are in chapter 1 uh, arguing. They have the inclination of um, slandering one another. And Paul is saying, no, you need to submit. Submit to the character and nature and submit to what God teaches us about how we interact. They needed to learn how to have debates and how to share and how to learn. It's perfectly uh, normal in human interaction uh, outside of the gospel uh, for anger, for accusation, for loaded phrases, to use all, you never, you always. We like to paint people into boxes so that we can win the argument. And that is something that in a, in a fallen state, the whole point of a discussion oftentimes is to win. And when we bring that into our interaction in teaching and learning in the context of God's word, we are going to find ourselves perverting it. And we're going to find ourselves pretty hot under the collar when people disagree with what we're saying. We're going to get more aggressive in the way that we try and argue it. I'm certainly prone to this myself. I like to win. But the gospel and teaching isn't about winning. It's about pointing people to Christ. And so for the men, there is an aspect here where they need to submit to godly teaching. And so Paul says that men need to, in verse uh, 8 of chapter 2, the men who are in the church need to be praying and lifting holy hands. They need to be practicing the act of praying for others, engaging in. Prayer becomes a submission to a power, i.e. God, greater than ourselves. If one is angry and arrogant and acting out of the power of the world, prayer usually ends up sounding like the Pharisee in Jesus's parable in Luke 15. Thank God I'm not like. That's not prayer. Prayer. Lifting holy hands. Again, hands set apart to do what? First, to give praise to God. Secondly, to do the work of the kingdom. This isn't simply a good encouragement that in worship we should be worshiping with our whole bodies and not just our minds, but it also is an implication of what these leaders should be doing with their hands. They lift them up as means of worship for God. They are to be engaged in the work of the kingdom. Not, Paul says, angry or quarreling. So it appears in Ephesus that male leadership needed to work on not being angry and not quarreling and gathering a heart that would be prayerful 
and with hands lifted in worship and acknowledgement to God. They needed to submit to some teaching. There's also some instruction about what women leadership looks like in the church. Uh, and here we have a lot of evidence that in Ephesus and in Roman culture, there was a whole movement against some of the misogyny and the power of uh, the Roman culture, which was very misogynistic, that there was a whole group of women who were trying to break free from that. And uh, they were, uh, uh, in so doing, uh, dressing in ways which broke some pretty normal and some of them reasonable um, cultural norms. And so within the Greek and Roman culture, there were ways in which women dressed, which told you uh, their social class, but also the women who uh, worked as, um, well, courtesans, they also dressed a particular way. And the challenge was a growing number of women and the liberation and freedom that they knew in Christ were identifying with the freedom that these women were starting to live out of in their cultural rebellion and their cultural reaction. And so Paul is saying, look, we need to dress respectively. We don't react against certain negative things in this misogynistic culture. We still have to be respectable because we still live in God's world. Uh, we need to dress respectably, modestly, not either uh, over the top showing off how wealthy our husbands are, nor our sexuality, but to learn quietly, like Mary does at the feet of Jesus. And so in the context of their learning, it shouldn't be, and here's I think the key aspect, in reaction to the sins of the culture, which did not value women well, and that that caused a measure of angst and a measure of anger that caused an overreaction in a human sense and started to grab hold of all kinds of identifiers, far from bringing greater honor to women, simply robbed them of their humanity in a different way than the misogynistic culture of Rome, which saw them mostly as an ideal and as a way to have children. And so Paul is saying for the women, don't overreact to the sinful world, but understand the freedom you have in Christ and learn in the right way, honoring who you are and learning quietly, but learning nonetheless. And so, again, if we're going to be teachers, Timothy, who learned at the feet of Paul and is still learning from Paul in this letter how to be a good pastor and how to train others, he addresses clearly those things which are a hindrance to people's learning and a right, godly, different response and position of submitting to the very act of learning itself. And that is key. Learning puts us in a position of submission. which then takes us to the family. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, you see the sins of the culture, at least within the masculine, uh, at least within the men. 
their view of family was such that if I provided for my family and I had uh, created the right cultural expectations, what I do with my free time is my business. And this is well uh, documented throughout the first century and before and after Jesus's and the New Testament times. That in a certain way, men were expected to be responsible to provide, but there was that what I call the country music kind of philosophy, where you just realize that men are fatally flawed. And so you all you can do is hope that they're somewhat responsible. And then after that, they're just a man. So you got to stand by them and they can't really help what they do because they're men. And Paul is saying, no, because of who we are in Christ, those things are not true. Those cultural expectations are not absolute. What we need is first, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, submission to those in authority. And so calling people, first of all, then I urge you through supplication and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Guess what I can't do if I am doing chapter one, I mean, chapter two, verse one. I can't be seriously engaged in sexual immorality, enslaving, lying, perjuring, and other things contrary to good doctrine if I am listening to what Paul and Timothy tell me and I'm instead spending my time in prayer and supplication for others, in intercession, and in thanksgiving for all people. It's hard for me to use you for my ends if I spend my time praying for your good. Paul is saying I've got to change my perspective and my view, and that, of course, leads into how we are going to care for our families. Part of the role then, as we assess leaders and their ability to care for their families well, is their own submission to those around them. You can't have a man who believes that the role of his family is to submit to him, and yet you can't find anyone that that man submits to. It is the willingness to submit one to another that creates that context. And Paul has made it clear throughout the book that the leaders of the church are going to have to submit to the new wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel, not the wisdom of the world. It makes sense then that as Paul exhorts the men, he also exhorts the women to learn in submission as well, not as a unique idea, but as an extension of the idea that we all learn in submission to one another, which makes sense then that when we move into three verse four, that a culture of mutual submission should travel down to our children. It does, be, it does not become an odd one-off where because they're young, because we're paying for them, because we bore them, that they should then knuckle under to our decrees but instead fostered in a culture of what it means to learn that husbands and wives, men and women, being taught and sharing what they learn 
would translate into a family life where learning and growth becomes the way in which a family mutually grows in Christ. It's no longer earthly authority using the power of size or power or money, physical strength, but it is in the context of service, in the context of being served, that we begin to understand what Paul's expectations are. In this culture, things have changed a little bit from what Paul was speaking to. We have uh, a little less of that sense that uh, men can go off and do whatever they want to do as long as they're paying the bills. And that we culturally have an expectation that fathers and men in the church should not lord over and use their power, use their physical strength or their finances to dictate to their families and to uh, terrify and manipulate and abuse them. We would find that to be contrary to good practice, to good life. Yet nonetheless, I think that it's always good for us to reflect on how each one of these layers of our relationships create the settings within our homes. No part of our life ends up being disconnected from how we interact in the other parts of our life. And leadership then doesn't foster in just one area, but that heart of servant leadership that is growing and has something worth teaching and knows how to care for and then lead their families in the same sort of servant humility and fruit of the spirit will create families that are peaceable. Is Paul have in mind here that every child of every believer will always stay true to the faith? And if they don't, that is a mark of a failure to lead. That's not really in view here. What is in view, because we cannot control the hearts of anyone but ourselves, is the ability of that family to create a context in which the struggles of faith and life that adult and young children go through happen in the context of good teaching, but also life lived in good grace and mercy. It's interesting that what we're told to do when one turns away from the faith is treat them as an unbeliever which according to Paul is what his entire life is about, reaching out to Gentiles and extending grace and love, not compromising the truth, but creating, as Jesus did, an environment where all those who are wrestling and doubt their faith can come and know that they are respected and loved, whether it is a woman at a well, whether it is a blind man, whether it is a man... Uh, out living in tombs, possessed by a legion of demons, Jesus never compromised truth and yet allowed people into his presence to learn. And he created a family, a big family, a family not based on whatever you feel goes, but 
a family clearly based on the big love of God, which is big enough to handle even difficulties within the family, even questions and doubting. Because God knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. And we can rest in this season knowing a God who knows the beginning, the middle, of the end can continue to teach us and give us the strength to live and love in our families the way he lives and loves in his family, the family that he continues to grow and build by his grace and his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We ask again, Lord, that as individuals and as leaders, that we would delight in learning more about who you are, and Lord, sharing that in our words and in our deeds. And Lord, we ask that it would impact our families, whether we uh, are loving families that are extended, whether we still have children at home, whether we're single and we are loving the family of God, as well as our parents, Lord, all ways in which we can extend what we learn and see in the grace of who you are, that your family, Lord, might grow and be stronger even in this season. Your glory and honor in Christ's name. Amen.